Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, June 14th through Saturday the 16th feature Ricardo Muti directing a program of Shostakovich and Prokofiev and welcoming Judson and Joyce Green creative consultant, cellist Yo-Yo Ma. The program includes Shostakovich's Festive Overture and with Ma, the Cello Concerto No. 2. After intermission, Prokofiev's Symphony No. 3. Here are Philip Usher's program notes on the Shostakovich Cello Concerto No. 2, a work lasting about 33 minutes. Shostakovich saw in the new year of 1966, the year that would bring his 60th birthday, with close friends including Mstislav Rostropovich and the cellist's wife, opera singer Galina Vishnevskaya. At a party game, similar to our Name That Tune, Shostakovich played a popular 1920s street song from Odessa that he loved, Bublike, Kupete Bublike, Pretzels, Buy My Pretzels. That spring, when he began to write the first of two works celebrating his birthday, the song of the pretzels and the sound of Rostropovich's cello mysteriously merged into a new concerto, the second one he wrote for his dear friend to play. Rostropovich met Shostakovich in 1943 when the 16-year-old cellist joined the composer's classes in orchestration at the Moscow Conservatory. When Shostakovich heard his student play, he recognized a once-in-a-generation talent. He showered me with a mass of compliments, the cellist recalled decades later. He almost choked on them. Such was his delight. But it would be years before Shostakovich wrote anything for his friend to play. Once, when Shostakovich asked the composer's wife what he would have to do to get Shostakovich to write him a concerto, she replied, The only recipe I can give you is this. Never ask him or talk to him about it. Shostakovich kept still with the greatest difficulty, and he finally was rewarded with two major works in the span of seven years, one concerto in 1959, and as if to make up for lost time, the cellist learned and memorized it in four days, and then a second concerto composed in 1966. Aside from an early lightweight piano concerto that he wrote when he was in his 20s, Shostakovich became interested in the concerto form relatively late in his life and only as a direct result of his contact with important performers like Rostropovich or, in the case of the two violin concertos, David Oistrakh. A second piano concerto was written for his son, Maxim, who played it for the first time on his 19th birthday. The small number of concertos in his vast output is surprising, considering that Shostakovich produced 15 symphonies and 15 string quartets, three dozen film scores, several opera and ballet scores, and a great many songs, choral works, piano pieces, and arrangements of other music, including Tea for Two, which became the Tahiti Trot. The second concerto for Rostropovich is dramatically different from the first, just as the two violin concertos for Oistrakh also would inhabit different worlds. That may not be a coincidence. Shostakovich said he modeled his second violin concerto on the second cello concerto. Where the first cello concerto is big and dramatic, ideally capturing Rostropovich's larger-than-life personality, the second is dark, even somber. 
Perhaps Shostakovich was trying to test or at least stretch his soloist's extraordinary gifts. Mstislav Rostropovich, the composer later wrote, never resting, always searching and growing, is of such significance that it seems already possible to claim his name will come to be given to a whole era of cello playing in an era in which the range of possibilities for the instrument has been immeasurably broadened and in which players have been set new tasks and new problems. No doubt he also wanted to tap into the cello's affinity for inwardness, intimate, confidential kinds of music, and for what he had come to value most of all in Rostropovich's playing, quote, the intense, restless mind and the high spirituality that he brings to his mastery. The cello begins the work alone, slowly carving out a theme based on descending half-steps that is the essential building material for the piece. The music is introspective and austere, and although the development section is bolder and livelier, that mood does not stick. The bass drum sets off a short cello cadenza and then contributes to it as well. At no point in the concerto is there a big bravura solo turn for the cellist. This is a concerto in which the single voice and that of the crowd are intricately interwoven. Apparently, at one point during the composition, Shostakovich even thought the score was on the verge of becoming his 14th symphony, despite the fact that the solo cello plays nearly non-stop throughout. The next two movements, both marked allegretto, are highly different in character. They are played without pause. The second movement is a characteristic Shostakovich scherzo, driven, manic, sometimes grotesque. The main tune is the pretzel theme, Bubliki, Kupite Bubliki, originally a song about a penniless young girl forced to sell pretzels on the street. Here, it sounds desperate, even menacing. A fanfare for two horns interrupts to begin the finale. The cello imitates the fanfare unexpectedly accompanied by tambourine and then begins a series of new themes. The bubliki music returns to crown the climax. Other themes are reviewed in reverse order and the music winds down quickly to end in a whisper. Program notes by Philip Husher on Dmitry Shostakovich's Cello Concerto No. 2. And now on to Prokofiev's Symphony No. 3, a work lasting about 35 minutes. In the summer of 1917, Chicago businessman Cyrus McCormick Jr., the farm machine magnate, met the 26-year-old composer Sergei Prokofiev while on a business trip to Russia. Prokofiev was unknown to McCormick, but the composer recognized the distinguished American's name at once because the estate his father had managed owned several impressive international harvester machines. McCormick expressed an interest in the composer's new music and encouraged Prokofiev to come to the United States. He also asked him to prepare a package of his scores for Chicago Symphony Orchestra music director Frederick Stock to look at. McCormick wrote to Stock at once, saying that Prokofiev would be glad to come to Chicago and bring some of his symphonies if his expenses were paid, but not knowing myself the value of his music, I did not feel justified in taking the risk of bringing him here. After Stock received Prokofiev's scores, he replied to McCormick, There is no question in my mind as to the talent of young Sergei. 
Although Stock at first doubted that it was feasible to bring the Russian composer to the United States right away, Prokofiev made his debut with the Chicago Symphony the following season, playing his first piano concerto under Stock's baton and conducting the orchestra himself in the American premiere of his Scythian Suite in Orchestra Hall in December 1918. The appearance here of the young Russian Sergei Prokofiev at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra concert was the most startling and, in a sense, important musical event that has happened in this town for a long time, so wrote Henriette Weber in the Herald and Examiner. Personally, he is middle-sized and blonde, somewhat gangling about the arms and shoulders and entirely businesslike in demeanor, reported the journal. His business is his music while he is on stage, and he would seem to resent even the time that it takes to bow. The music itself caused quite a stir. Russian genius displays weird harmonies, was the headline in The American. The music was of such savagery, so brutally barbaric, Weber wrote, that it seemed almost grotesque to see civilized men in modern dress with modern instruments performing it. By the same token, it was big, sincere, true. The public loved it. Every man and woman there reacted to it, Weber continued, and Prokofiev was given a thundering ovation that at least, in a slight degree, expressed the tumultuous emotions he inspired. While he was in the United States, Prokofiev came across The Fiery Angel, a symbolist novel by Valery Beryosov about a man who is haunted by visions of an angel and later by the conviction that the angel has come to earth in the form of a count. Prokofiev soon began sketching the outlines of an opera based on the 1908 novel. Work was well underway on the score when he returned to Chicago three years later to oversee the world premiere of his Piano Concerto No. 3, which he played in Orchestra Hall on December 16th, and his opera, The Love for Three Oranges, which was staged by the Chicago Opera at the Auditorium Theater on December 30th. The Chicago Symphony also played Prokofiev's classical symphony for the first time that month. Both new works were public successes, and both are now among the composer's most highly regarded pieces. The next spring, Prokofiev carved time out of his busy performing schedule to retreat to the Bavarian Alps, where he could devote himself to The Fiery Angel. A piano score was completed the following year, but the opera wasn't finished until 1927. Serge Kusevitsky conducted a concert performance of an abridged Act II in Paris that year, but it was poorly received and dismissed as old-fashioned. Apparently, they are obsessed with deciding what can be called modern, the latest thing, and the very latest thing, Prokofiev said, surprised and deflated by the reaction. Bruno Walter was scheduled to lead a full production later that year at the Berlin Staatsoper, but that was canceled allegedly because of delays in copying the parts. Prokofiev didn't buy Walter's excuse and called the cancellation despicable. By then, Prokofiev must have begun to suspect that he would never see the opera produced during his lifetime, and he began to make other plans for the music. I was sorry the opera had not been staged and that the score lay gathering dust on the shelf. I was about to make a suite out of it when I remembered that for one of the entrecs I had used the development of themes in the preceding scene, and it occurred to me that this might serve as the kernel for a symphony. 
I examined the themes and found that they would make a good exposition for a sonata allegro. I found the same themes in other parts of the opera differently expressed and quite suitable for the recapitulation. In this way, the plan for the first movement of the symphony worked out quite simply. The material for the scherzo and for the andante was also found without difficulty. The finale took a little longer. I spent far more time whipping the thing into final shape, tying up all the loose ends, and doing the orchestration. But the result, the third symphony, I consider to be one of my best compositions. Prokofiev was adamant that his new score be judged only on its symphonic merits, despite its operatic origins. I do not like it to be called the Fiery Angel Symphony. The main thematic material was composed quite independently of the opera. Used in the opera, it naturally acquired its coloring from the plot, but being transferred from the opera to the symphony, it lost that coloring. I believe, and I should therefore prefer, the third symphony to be regarded as pure symphony. Ironically, given the Paris reaction to the Fiery Angel, the Third Symphony is one of Prokofiev's most intensely modern works. It begins at a fever pitch with some of the noisiest and most searing music Prokofiev ever wrote, and although the opening slowly dissolves into a big, richly melodic theme, there are more loud, obsessively repetitive, and dissonant passages to follow. The slow second movement, magically colored and delicately orchestrated, brings music of restraint and relief. It is derived from the scene in the opera where the nun returns to the convent to escape her obsessions. The third movement is a grotesque scherzo filled with special effects. The violin glissandos are particularly spooky. This is wild and untamed music that is, nevertheless, constructed with great care. I worked a great deal on the scherzo between rehearsals, Prokofiev wrote in his autobiography, increasing or decreasing the number of bars and trying to find the correct proportion. A slower, dreamy, waltz-like trio does not dispel a sense of the bizarre and otherworldly. The finale begins tragically, builds through a series of increasingly frantic climaxes, relaxes just long enough to showcase Prokofiev's melodic flair and his penchant for imaginative orchestral color, and then lets loose with music of a sheer barbaric splendor that even Prokofiev, among the noisiest of the moderns, rarely surpassed. Program notes by Philip Husher on the Symphony No. 3 by Prokofiev. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.